Now, it's a little while since we were in the book of Revelation. So rather than just plunge straight into the passage, here's a very quick uh, recap just to remind us of the overall thrust of this whole letter. And, um, and as well, what we looked at last time in chapter 12 was actually some weeks ago now. So you're forgiven if it's not totally fresh in your memory if you've been with us before today. Um, the book of Revelation, written by John, I think can be summed up in two words. God wins. That's the story of the whole of history. If you want to know how the story concludes, it's God wins. Uh, so that even in troubling and sometimes um, bizarre circumstances the church might find herself in, uh, being persecuted or facing some hardship of some sorts, they're being encouraged um, in this book, in the book of Revelation, that God wins. And our lives as believers are safe in his almighty hands. Uh, there's security following Jesus. Um, so that's the, the thrust of the whole letter. Last time we looked at chapter 12, and that took us into a new section in this book, looking again at, if you like, the whole of AD history, and giving us a behind-the-scenes look at what's really happening in terms of spiritual conflict. We were looking at the fact that there is a battle that goes on, unseen by our human eyes, but looking in the scriptures, it's explained to us, it's revealed to us what's going on. Now we saw there, in very, very vivid Stark, dramatic language, um, Satan described as a dragon who attempted to devour a male child. The male child is Jesus. Jesus was taken up to, to the Father in heaven and was, uh, was not destroyed by the dragon. The dragon then turns his attention on the woman, and the woman is God's people. And so we saw that, that the, the dragon knows, Satan knows, that he has already been completely defeated and his days are numbered um, but rather than kind of accept defeat honorably um, there's a desperate attempt still on the dragon's part on the satan's part to undermine god's plans and purposes for the world for history those those attempts to undermine god's plans and purposes are ultimately um fruitless. Um, and yet the church can be walking through situations where it feels very much like, well, there's a battle going on right here. And it's into that kind of situation that chapter 13 continues to address. We've met the dragon, and, uh, and we've seen that the dragon has been hurled down, the accuser of the brothers has been hurled down. Uh, and chapter 13, we see what the, the dragon attempts to do next in order to thwart God's plans, or attempt at least to do so. So let's read uh, Revelation 13, and uh, we'll begin verse 1. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his authority and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wounds had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth 
to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority on the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and, it, and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insights, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Right then, have you ever come across a counterfeit? Okay, what is a counterfeit, you might ask? Counterfeits are fakes, an imitation of something. There's the, there's the real article, there's the genuine article, the real deal over here, and there's a, a counterfeit, a fake. The thing about counterfeits is they look very like the real deal, but there's some key differences, and over time it's revealed that the counterfeit has absolutely no value in comparison to the real thing. So have you come across a counterfeit? Counterfeit clothing. Oh, Counterfeit clothing looks like the real deal. It has the right kind of emblem on it. But what happens to counterfeit clothing? As soon as you put it in the wash, what happens? Color runs and it shrinks to half the size. You think, no, rubbish. Have you ever found a counterfeit coin in your wallet? You've gone and bought something, you've got some change back. It's only later that you inspect the money that you were given and you realize it's not a real pound. It's not a real coin. Did you know that there are um, over half a million fake notes in circulation in this country or thereabouts. Did you know that 3% or nearly 3% of all one pound coins in this country are counterfeit? Now statistically that would mean that let's say between us we had uh, 200 um, 
Oh, let's get my numbers right. I'm going to get them wrong. I'm pretty sure of it. Ah, uh, if this is wrong, I think this is right. If there's 200 pound coins amongst us, 250 pound coins, then we've got about 25. Oh, rubbish. You know what? Six. That's right. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Observe the speedy mathematical mind I have that just managed to work that one out. <clears throat> yeah. Which means that if 200 pound coins have been put into the offering buckets, oh, we won't go there. Um, the question is then, can you spot a fake? Can you spot a counterfeit? And we're going to do an example of that on the screen. Um, can you spot a fake 20 pound note? Um, Last year we brought you the big quiz, this morning we've got the little quiz, and there's just one question. So the question is out there, which is the real £20 note? Just wait there. Um, we are going to see two £20 notes. I'm going to give you a little bit of time on each. And after that, I'm going to ask you which one you think is the fake, and which one you think is the real. Now often with counterfeits, you're, you're, you're looking for the details that might be slightly different. It might not be immediately apparent. So if we could just look at the first one. Is this the real £20 note? I'm just going to give you a few moments just to pause. Just have a good look at it. All the details there. Yeah. Obviously, being a PowerPoint presentation, you can't actually go and pick it up and inspect it and all the rest of it, smell it and taste it and so on. Um, so just going on, on the image itself, take it in. Is that the real thing? Is that the real thing? Okay, let's now look at the second one. Okay, so I'm going to give you a few moments just to have a look. See if you can see. You might just be beginning to get it. Okay, which one was the real one? Number, the one, number one or number two? Well done. Excellent. You passed. Everyone's a winner. Um, so, it's clearly a fake. It's, um, if you look at the details, the Bank of Presley. Um, I don't think you're going to be able to buy much with that. If someone gives something like that to you in a shop, I think it's safe to say, you can say no. I'll, I'll have a different one. So it's clearly a counterfeit. It's clearly not the real deal. But actually, at the same time, it's got some detail in there. You think, well, you, you know what it's trying to be, don't you? You know it's trying to be a real £20 note. It's just obviously a bit of a, a joke version. Okay, we can take that down. Thank you, Mr. Presley. Um, Okay, so back to chapter 13 of Revelation. You're wondering where on earth is this going? Fantastic. Um, the dragon we saw last time in chapter 12 is an accuser. He loves to bring accusation to God's people just to try and depress them and make them feel disqualified before God and just basically no good second-rate Christians or whatever. He loves to do that. God has cast him down. So that's one of his strategies, if you like, to try and damage God's people, to try and distract them, to try and depress them. Here's the other, another strategy that Satan or the, or, uh, the dragon has, and that's to, to counterfeit. He's a deceiver. He's a trickster. The Bible describes him in John chapter 8 as the, the father of lies, but he tries to make his lies look very convincing. So they might have elements of familiarity with the truth about them, but the truth has just got completely distorted, and but he's looking to deceive people and, and bring people away 
as it were, from the real deal. Now, straight away, what that reveals is, whilst he is, um, he is real and he is a dangerous foe, what we also see about the dragon is he is limited. He's not a genuine creator. He's not, an, he's not able to kind of produce an original, as it were. He's a copycat. And so he sees what God has done, and he sees who God is perfectly and wonderfully, and he can't come up with something himself. He, he just takes the truth and then distorts it. He's not really creative. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's a copycat. And maybe you came across copycats at school. I, mean, I don't know why we did this, but every test in primary school, it, it was kind of just a done thing that you would do this. And just hide your answers. Because probably you knew that your best mate, well not your best mate necessarily, your worst mate maybe, was like looking over your shoulder to try and get the answers. Didn't have a Scooby actually, but that was me, I didn't have a Scooby. So um, looking over other people's shoulders to try and see what the real answer is. Um, oh, right, 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 right. Um, that would reveal the copycat is kind of crafty, but not as clever as the person who actually knows. All right? The dragon is crafty, but he's no way near as impressive, powerful, glorious, wonderful, and wise and understanding as God, who is the genuine creator. So how do we see this strategy at work? Well, chapter 13 is one of the most uncomfortable chapters, probably in the book of Revelation, and probably in the entire Bible, because in it... We meet two beasts. Two beasts that the dragon has brought forth. And they are counterfeits. They are fakes. We're going to look at beast number one, beast number two, and then we're going to hopefully land at a helpful conclusion that will bless us as then we go and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Um, the first beast is a counterfeit. The first beast, the beast that comes out of the sea, is a counterfeit of Christ. Here we meet a fake saviour, a counterfeit Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This beast is an image of the dragon that's just created it. It looks the same with all its heads and horns and so on. This beast is given power and a throne and great authority. Cast your mind back to chapters 4 and 5. Oh, the wonders of chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, where we saw Jesus, almighty God, the Lamb, seated on a throne of all heaven. Well, here, this counterfeit has been given a throne and given great authority. Not only so, it's, it's got a fatal wound that's been mysteriously healed. And even the, the text in the original is using the same phrase. It's This beast is, or one of its heads is, looking as though it was slain. And we know that the Lamb of God is on the throne. He is. He still has the appearance of one who's been slain for our sins. So we're dealing here with a, with a, an, a, a counterfeit, a fake saviour, who also attracts worship or seeks to attract worship from the whole world, who provides a fake salvation. So there's this, this song that is uttered. Who is like the beast in verse 4? 
commentators point out that that is remarkably similar to a song that was sung by Moses in Exodus chapter 15. God had just saved his people. They just experienced that wonderful redemption. They'd been taken out of Egypt. Uh, They'd been rescued from the Pharaoh. The waters had opened up. They'd gone through. And then the waters had closed behind them, uh, drowning and washing away Pharaoh and all his uh, chariots. And they, they knew what it was to be saved by a God who loves them. And there in Exodus uh, and 15 in verse 11, this song comes out. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in wonder, and so on? Um, and there's almost, yeah, even here, there's a distortion of that song. The, the world thinking, wow, this beast has saved us. Who's like this beast? And they say, oh, this is an ugly, horrendous distortion of what is true. And so another name for this beast, the beast out of the sea, elsewhere in scripture we see it as the Antichrist. And so we see that, for example, in 1 John and, uh, and chapter 2, only just a few pages before the book of Revelation, so unlike me, you should have no difficulty finding it. Um, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So here is, uh, in John's letter there and also in Revelation, this prediction of, a, of an Antichrist is going to come. Well, what does that really mean? When we use that kind of phrase anti-something, it means we tend to use it as against. And so this morning... Some of you might needed to have used anti-freeze on your car. Um, I am against frost, and so I need to... Oh, dear me. Um, I need to clear the windscreen. Anti-freeze. We'll be familiar with kind of placards and slogans saying anti-war. I'm against this war. Not, you know, this war is not in my name. So against, that's how we would tend to use it. Or anti-aging, all those products that have flown off the shelves for Christmas presents, promising eternal youth. Uh, Anti-aging products, I'm against aging. It's not right. Um, Well, good luck. Um, So we use the word in that sense. But in Greek, it has that sense, against something, so hence against Christ. I am against Christ, someone might say. Well, it's saying something more than that. Anti also means, in the Greek, instead of. So it's not just you know, one of your mates or colleagues saying, I don't believe in Jesus. <gasps> I'm friends with the Antichrist. No, you're not. They just aren't convinced yet that Jesus is real and he is the true saviour. Um, the Antichrist is one who says, not just that I'm against Jesus, but I'm instead of him. You don't need him, in other words. What you need to do is look to me. I will provide you with all that you need. I'll satisfy your every desire. I can be your Messiah. That's that's the attitude or the spirit of the Antichrist. Now what John is saying there is that The Antichrist is coming. There's going to be this 
the ultimate example of that attitude or that spirit yet to come. Someone who will rise up um, in world history who will, as we've seen it here, this beast just deceiving people into thinking he or maybe she is our hero. All our hope is in this person and we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to worship them. We're going to worship them. That's to come. But uh, what John was saying is actually many antichrists have come. There have been many examples of this kind of attitude right through the ages. And for people originally reading this letter in Revelation, it wouldn't have been a puzzle to work out who they were meaning. At the time, on the throne of the Roman Empire was a guy called, I probably no one called him that, was Emperor uh, Domitian. And he claimed a title for himself. He claimed the title, Our Lord and God. He wanted to attract worship to himself, the, the one to be trusted, the one in whom all security was. And that meant he was ruling, really, an, an evil, anti-God state power. Because for anyone to say, no, I'm not trusting Caesar, I'm trusting Christ, I'm not worshipping Caesar, that immediately put them at risk of significant persecution and even martyrdom. So here, so for those, they, they knew a, a totalitarian leader, um, ruling with an iron rod and to not worship the Caesar, literally as our Lord and God, was going to endanger your life. Since then, other nations have had other totalitarian leaders Despots, Sikhs, minions, um, must be always loyal and worship the ground that I walk on. That was the kind of the, the attitude of totalitarian leaders right around the world, maybe even some in today's day and age, who kind of think in, their picture has to be everywhere for some reason. Kind of some sort of soft focus photograph and in, in every significant place. And, you know, always bowed down to, or whatever, a, a nation that has to worship, to oppose, to bring any criticism, to demonstrate any lack of loyalty in some way or another, is to risk life. Well, that can be the case for some, in some nations of the world. And in the future, there may be more of the same, when this ultimate Antichrist figure comes. But what, what about us? How does this really relate to us? Is there anything that we are tempted to put our trust in to save us? Might be a literal person. We don't live in a totalitarian regime looking to control our absolutely every move on threat of death. But there can be ways in which maybe we are tempted to put our trust, not in God, but maybe in actually what the government can do for us. Maybe when everything is breaking and the economy's failing and all the rest of it, we think, oh, but I'm sure they'll sort us. Yeah, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just put our trust in the government to sort things. Everything's going to be okay. Well, that's not necessarily a, a, a healthy attitude. We can be, there can be other things. All you need is dot, dot, dot. Well, what is it that we need? What is it that we feel tempted or feel drawn to put our trust in? We can be tempted or drawn to even put our trust in ourselves. And so life can be very much about just doing, keeping to 
the rules. Yeah, counterfeit Christianity, counterfeit religion, always emphasizes our own work. You'll be safe and secure if you match up to these standards of behavior and conduct. You've got to pray this many times a day. You've got to do this. You have to do that. You've got to try harder. Now, come on, everybody. Oh, oh, right. And uh, that's what religion does. That's what counterfeit variants of Christianity bring about a sense of it's, I, I've got to I've got to somehow do it. I've got to somehow make my own life secure. Well, what should our response be to all of these things? The first section ends by saying this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. That phrase there, patient endurance, in some translations I would also say steadfastness. It's got the idea of being unswerving. It's just interesting, that, that word, just I suppose as I, as I knew I was going to mention it, stood out to me as, as Dave was reading passages of scripture. Let's hold unswervingly to the faith we profess. Well, what is the faith we profess? Or in whom is the faith that we profess? It's the name of Jesus. And we were hearing last week as Jeremy was speaking to us about running the race, f- having our eyes fixed on Jesus. There can be many counterfeits. There can be many distractions. There can be many things that we're kind of invited in this world to put our trust in, to put our faith in. Yeah, not our literal Caesar, but the world will be bombarding us with those ideas all the time. As it was for those people who are originally reading this letter, the book of Revelation, tempted to put their trust in other things. And here comes this reminder. No, this calls for patient endurance, an absolute unswerving commitment to Jesus and what we believe to be true. In the mid-90s, not long after I, I became a Christian, there was a song that um, at the time I thought was really, you know, it was one of those songs you thought was really trendy. And then you listen to it again 15 years later and you think, yeah, timeless truth, rubbish tune. Um, but it had the phrase, it spoke of Jesus being my magnificent obsession. And really, I just wanted to encourage you this morning, and for this year, whatever it involves, whatever troubles and hardships, as well as whatever blessings and, uh, and good things is to endeavor to make Jesus more and more your unswerving, magnificent obsession. He really is good. You know, we've seen this horrific beast, the beast out of the sea. This beast who's somehow, for a time, a limited time, given power to conquer. But how does he conquer? He conquers through fear, through intimidation, through those kind of worldly demonstrations of, of power, making war against people. How does Jesus, the true Savior, how does, how does he conquer? Describes him in this passage as the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. This Savior, the true Savior, conquered, not because he was taking other people's lives, because he was willing to give his own. And isn't it's an amazing phrase to consider that before creation, 
before God had created. He was the lamb who was slain. In deciding to create the world in love, God knew that it would cost him. And so before the creation of the world, having decided to create the world, God the Son freely decided that he was willing to lay down his life for the creation that he was about to breathe into existence. That's the extent of the caring love of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he was willing to do, to lay down his life. Not threatening other people's, but to lay down his own. That's who he has been from the very beginning. In a mild or manic panic, he didn't really think as creation was going wrong, oh, now I'm going to have to do something. Oh no, now reluctantly I must give myself for the people who have rejected me. I must lay my life down. I suppose I'm just going to have to do it. It wasn't a reluctant decision on Jesus' part. He freely chose to give his life for you and for me. That's the the wonderful saviour that I want to be more magnificently obsessed with in this year. Um, but, but I need a plan to do that. And this is not to lay down a legalistic rule, but to put out there as an exhortation and as encouragement to all of us. If we are to become more obsessed with Jesus, our magnificent saviour, it will have a lot to do with how much we are enjoying this. And then I think to myself, I need a plan. I need a plan that's going to help me become more obsessed about Jesus, more kind of just marveling and in awe of him. I need a plan to enjoy this. Because what happens is the busyness of life comes in. And before I know it, I'm kind of thinking, oh no, I suppose I ought to read the Bible. I suppose I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'm not really seem to do that well. And we can just get under a legalistic pressure. So that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, actually, do you have a plan? Again, we've all got a unique race to run. It's not about kind of comparing ourselves with one another. But there are a whole variety of ways in which we can seek to get hold of God's word. That can be literally by, by following a, a, a reading plan that takes you right through the year. And there are a variety of those that might kind of help you to say, right, okay, um, it's such and such a day, and on this day, kind of, here's, here's a few chapters of the Bible to read, and that will help me to read the Bible potentially in a year, or within a couple of years, so that I get the breadth, so that I see what it's got to say about Jesus on every page. Um, the advantage of that is, it helps me when I think, I just don't know what to read. I don't know where to go next. I'm not sure what to look at. Well, the decision's already made for me. Uh, and I don't have to stick slavishly on, oh no, I'm falling behind in my plan. No, just, just keep, keep taking steps, keep moving. That can be, can be one way of doing it. One way of doing it is to decide, right, I'm going to look at a certain book of the Bible and just going to spend some time, uh, looking at that book in particular. Maybe then I'll, I'll, I'll go on. You might notice, um, uh, Arnold led us in this way that we would, we would, we would look at a book of the Bible as he preached. Um, and we, we, that might involve looking at a, a book in the New Testament. After preaching through a book in the New Testament, might then go to a book in the Old Testament. After looking at a book in the Old Testament, might look then back in the New Testament, look at a gospel. Okay, we've looked at a gospel. Right now I'm going to look at an epistle. 
Uh, right, I'm gonna, and it's giving us a, a, a good and wide and varied, varied diet. But it's, it's helpful to have a plan. It's helpful to think not so that you feel kind of totally locked in. Actually, you're, you're free to change. You're free to experiment. You're free to, uh, to try different ways. Uh, one way that can be helpful is kind of getting another, getting a book that actually helps you understand the book that you want to look at. Many of you will already be familiar with, uh, with the Straight to the Heart series uh, that Phil Moore has, has, uh, has written. So it's on a book of the Bible, and it will give you a relatively bite-sized chunk. That's, again, it's, just, it's helping us get into the Word of God. Not for the sake of it, not for, so that we can just kind of tick something off on a list of behavior so that God will still be pleased with me. No, God is pleased with you. It's about us. I want to, f- I want to feed. I want to get totally, my eyes focused on my wonderful Savior. We meet a second beast. We'll look at him uh, briefly. The first beast is a counterfeit Christ. It'll make sense then, from the dragon's point of view at least, to provide another counterfeit beast. This is the the counterfeit Holy Spirit, the beast out of the earth, the second beast, a counterfeit counselor. Holy Spirit is our wonderful counselor. The dragon, Satan, comes up with a horror uh, fake or, or counterfeit. Uh, elsewhere, he's referred to as, uh, as the false prophet. So what do we see about this beast? This beast exercises all the authority of the first beast on his behalf. This beast makes people worship the first beast, setting up an image of it, so that if people refuse to worship the first beast, uh, they are killed. This beast performs great and miraculous signs, even um, producing fire from heaven, counterfeit Miracles, in other words, to uh, to impress and to draw people to the first beast. This beast puts a mark on the right hand or the forehead um, uh, that's necessary for buying or selling. So this beast kind of provides a measure of apparent security in life as well. Can you see then how it is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit was sent by the Father... So that when Jesus returned to glory, we would receive another comforter. We'd receive another counselor. Who would do what? What's the Holy Spirit's role? What's the Holy Spirit's purpose? It's to remind us of Jesus. To remind us of everything that he taught and everything that he did. What does the Holy Spirit do? Wants to encourage us in our worship of our wonderful Savior. What does the Holy Spirit do? He brings signs and wonders that again point us to the wonder and the awesomeness of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit puts a mark on his followers. It doesn't enable us to buy or sell, but it's a mark of security. It's a mark of you belong eternally to God and eternally. Whether your life feels very safe on the earth right now, you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you're Life is secure into eternity. And you've already received, as it were, a, a, a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing all that that is to come. In heaven, we will receive absolutely 
everything. But even now, we get these foretastes, these deposits of what God's kingdom is like. And so what happens in God's kingdom? People are healed. What happens in God's kingdom? There are miracles. There are answers to prayer that all point us back to our wonderful saviour, Jesus. So we have here in Revelation this false prophet. And again, the first readers of the book of Revelation would have not had to think very hard about who represented this kind of attitude. There were priests or agents of the Roman Empire whose job it was to literally set up images of the emperor. Here, there and everywhere. Temples right through Asia Minor. And what their job was, was to make sure that people worshipped that image. And it was a great way of weeding out people who wouldn't. Because if there's an, if there's an image there of an emperor, and you as a believer refuse to worship it, okay, right, would you come with me? Uh, we've got a, a nice scheme of persecution and martyrdom for you. This way, please. Uh, so that that's what people's job was. They, they, as it were, were pointing to Caesar. Come on, put your trust in him. Worship him. He's the one in, you, in which your security lies. Look at how successful he is. Look at how powerful he is. You're a fool to look anywhere else. That's what these priests would be saying. And again, we don't have that literally in the same way. But there can be... Um, Things in, in mass media, advertising, through smartphones, the internet, or whatever, ways in which our culture is saying, look to something other than Jesus. Put your hope and your trust in something other than Jesus. This is where your security lied. What? You're not putting your hope and trust in this? You're a fool! You idiot! That's what's going on. That's the, the attitude that can come through in the world. So again, what's, what's our response to be in this? If we misunderstand why Revelation chapter 13 is here in the Bible, what can happen is our response is one of fear. Of one of intimidation. Look at these beasts. Look at, like, look at the nature of spiritual conflict in this world. And there's a battle going on. And how are we supposed to live? I'm not sure, but I've got a good idea. I'm just going to hide. I'm just going to run away. Um, I'm going to have nothing to do with the world. Uh, I know. Let's form the holiest of closed holy huddles. And let's talk about how dark the world is. And, and let's kind of... Let's just be scared. Let's stay, stay in and do nothing. Well, again, it doesn't, the scripture here says this, it doesn't say this calls for worry or this calls for fear. It says this calls for wisdom. So it's not being fearful. Again, it mentions the number 666. We've not had loads of time to go into that. But if a car drives past and the number plate says 666, you don't have to dive for cover. Okay? That person is probably making some kind of statement. But it doesn't mean that literally the Antichrist is driving a beaten up Nissan Micra through your local area or whatever. Yes, someone might be trying to make a point, but that's not necessarily <laughs> um, uh, the one in whom the whole world is putting their trust. It's just someone who's driving a car with a stupid number plate. Um, so it, it's not a case of, of diving for cover. 
It's a case of just having wisdom. You know, that number 666, in a sense, if it was talking about God, if it was the number for God, it would say 777, three times seven. Why the number seven? Well, again, as we've seen, the number seven is about kind of God's perfect completeness. 666, it just falls short of that in every respect. This calls for wisdom. There are things that are attractive. There are things that are alluring. There are things that say, put your trust here. But it's just got the number 666 written on it, really. Just falls short. Promises satisfaction. Promises even salvation. Promises security. Delivers nothing. It just always falls short. That's what the world is like. So let's be unswerving for Jesus. Let us put our hope in him. Let us be discerning about the things that are on offer in life that don't satisfy. Let's pursue, in other words, the real deal rather than the counterfeit. You know, I began by saying, can you spot a counterfeit? Hopefully, kind of looking through these chapters, we can begin to see how, how that kind of unpacks what we've been looking at in chapter 13. But can you spot a counterfeit? There are people, I guess they're probably employed by the Bank of England or someone, whose job it is to spot a counterfeit, to spot a fake. Because obviously, if there's, if there's money circulating in this country that is fake, it needs to be spotted and taken out of circulation. We need to get rid of it. Well, so how do they do that? And you might think, well, do they have to study every single possible counterfeit? There'll be loads of different people trying. Loads of different varieties. Loads of different ways in, in, in which people try to fake a £20 note. Do you have to be an expert in every example, every bad example? Is that, is that how those guys train? Apparently... What they do, they don't study the fakes. They study the genuine article. This is the real £20 notes. And I'm going to get used to this. What does the paper feel like? What's the hologram like? What's, what's all the calligraphy like? What's where? What, what are the images on it? They get very familiar with the real deal. With the genuine article. And again, that's the encouragement in this passage to us. And let's think of it as something for, since it's January... For the whole year, getting more and more familiar with the real thing. That's my challenge for you. If you have been saved in excess of 20 or 30 years, get more familiar. Marvel more with your wonderful Savior. Maybe it's kind of finding new ways. Maybe there's, there's different plans that you might put in place. Think, actually, I, I want to, I, I don't want to, I don't want to arrive at the point where I think I know it all. Because when I think I know it all, this wonderful kind of 20 pound note, as it were, just in my own eyes, maybe just seems a little less significant. No, let's look at what has true value and really go for it. If you are a very new believer, then get to know the wonderful God in which you have recently begun a relationship with. And do that by, by looking here. And maybe talking with others about what they're discovering from what is here. And my challenge as well, if you, if you do not follow Jesus, if uh, the faith that we are kind of celebrating on occasions like this is something that is foreign to you, then my challenge to you as well is actually, why don't you spend some time investigating 
what's in here? Why don't you take some time investigating the real saviour of the world? The world will, will, will provide you with many alternatives. It will provide you with many other things you could look at. Many other things you could put your hope in. Many other things you could place your security in. I challenge you to take a look at Jesus. I challenge you to, to look at the claims he made. Maybe just look through a book of the Bible like the book of Mark. Looking at the life and times of Jesus, but in a fairly kind of concise way. Get an overview. What was this guy like? Who do I think he, he was? Who do I think he is? Allow yourself to be surprised. There are so many ways we can become so familiar with the counterfeit. There's, there, there are certain words that just suggest it. Oh, look, I've got a Rolex. Oh, I bet it's a fake. Because most of them are, surely. No, no, it's the real deal. We can start to kind of think, there's so many counterfeits out there. I've just lost hope that there is a real deal. No, the, the fact that there are things that are fakes is actually pointing to the truth. There is a real saviour. There's a real God who's really involved and with us in this world by his Holy Spirit who wants to know us, who wants to draw us on unswervingly a relationship with him which, which is satisfying, which brings security, even involves the miraculous spilling out. So that's the life that God has for us. Let's just make it our aim, recommit ourselves again to making him our magnificence obsession. Let's pray.